Well, good morning. We are in the uh, book of Romans, as uh, many of you know, most of you know, if you are, uh, this is your first Sunday here in this new year, uh, welcome, happy new year to you, but I encourage you to turn to Romans chapter 2. We're going to be working in that text as we walk through uh, this series together. I had somebody ask me last week what, uh, what translation I'm, I'm working from because I was messing them up. Uh, because as many of you know, I often and typically preach from the New Living Translation, one of my favorite translations for a variety of reasons, which I won't get into today. But uh, in this last year, I bought a new Bible, and I don't do that all that often. The other one was getting kind of ratty, and, uh, but it, you know, it, it gets a smell after a while. Uh, I don't know about yours, but mine, and, and the smell was getting bad, so it was time to change. Um, anyways, uh, so I got a NIV, so this is a new international version, so that's what I'm uh, working from. Feels weird, there's no marks in it yet, it's really blank, uh, so if you're one who marks up your Bible like me, uh, this feels like a place of stress. I don't know where anything is anymore in here, so I'm rediscovering it, so you have to have patience with me. Well, we're in Romans chapter 2, and uh, as we've talked about in this series, we're, we're kind of walking through this text. It's a great uh, discipline, uh, it has been for me. Uh, and I trust for you as well, too. And I was even talking to some people this morning who've been already immersed in Romans again this week and, and have been following along and studying that. And I just continue to encourage you uh, to do that. There is so much in this letter to Romans. If you know this text at all, you know that. It's one of the most uh, beloved books of the Bible because it contains so much understanding of God and understanding of the gospel and how do we think about the gospel, how do we live out the gospel and so on. And and Romans chapter 2, no different. So last week we were in uh, chapter 1 and and I talked a little bit about the uh, two aspects of the gospel that we kind of were looking at in in Romans 1, both the problem and the solution. And the problem being of the reality of our sin and the wrath of God, the reality of the wrath of God, the judgment of God, the holiness of God, and the reality of our sin, and how God has provided us with this solution of the gospel, the grace of God that has covered our sin and made us free, made us whole, and redeemed us, forgiving our sins and uh, putting us in right relationship with God. There's no need for that solution unless we recognize the problem. And so that's part of what Paul was doing in chapter 1, was understanding those two aspects. And now in chapter 2, he continues with that. So if you remember last week in chapter 1, there was this reality of sin and a whole list of different things and challenging ones and some that you would say, oh, those are really you know, difficult ones and others that you kind of go, eh, not so bad. Disobeying your parents, how bad can that be? And yet it's in his list. Like it's in this list of the things that he says, these are things that God calls sin. And, and so last week we looked at the need for every one of us for repentance, confession, and forgiveness. And to, and to receive that from the living God. So today as we look at, and we'll start in, we won't be able to take time into all of the verses in depth, but we'll uh, cover many of them. And I, I want to start in, in just the section 1 to 4, verses 1 to 4, obviously at the beginning. And when you look at the transition of this first section from Romans chapter 1, in some ways it feels a little bit like a setup for, for Paul. It's almost like he sort of brought them to this precipice and he sort of toyed with them a little bit and because in chapter one he uses the they language a lot and so he says things like you know God has given them over to a depraved mind you know they are full of envy and murder and strife Uh, they have no understanding and he's using the they language and then right away in chapter two he says now you and the language really shifts 
and, and we see that. And, and he says, you know what? It's almost like he was setting them up to feel good about themselves, to kind of smug, and, you know, Paul's pointing out, you know, these sinners and so on. Yeah, they, they, they. And then he turns it around and puts the mirror up and says, okay, now you. Let's talk about you. So that's what he starts with in verse 1 to 4. Let's read. You, therefore, have no excuse. You who pass judgment on someone else, for at whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself. Because you who pass judgment do the same things. Now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So when you, a mere human being, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the richness, riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? Then he goes on to talk about this wrath of God that is there for those who judge in this way. So Paul's concern here isn't so much with those who do these sinful things, but now he's turning the attention to those who judge those who do these certain things. And he says it's time to look at ourselves. There's a number of things going on here in verses 1 to 4. First of all, that, that God is a just God. That God is a holy God. That God is a God who rightfully judges. That there is a difference between God's judgment and human judgment. And, and so we see that right away in this, in this chapter. That understanding that God has the right to judge and God judges in fairness and in truth. But second, we see another thing that's going on here is that Paul is, is speaking to the Jews primarily. So he's got a specific target audience in mind. And, and as we go through chapter 2, we'll see that. And there are different places in Romans that we'll see him speaking specifically to the Jews and other times to the Gentiles and the different kind of messages he has for each. Here he seems to be pointing his attention specifically to the Jewish believers and saying, you know what, you think you have this very unique position because you are part of the Mosaic Law. You're part of the people of Israel. And you think that that just gives you right standing and, and kind of just a, a blank slate because of that privilege that God has given you. But he has some pretty challenging words for them. Because they would be oftentimes people who would maybe look down their noses. I mean, think of the Pharisees that Jesus spoke against so often. These Jewish religious leaders who knew so much and who often had this condescending, self-righteous kind of attitude and approach to others as they judged others in condemnation and kind of their own self-righteousness. And in many ways, I think that that is some of the attitude that Paul is addressing here. So he's speaking to the Jews, and we'll, we'll come back to that in a minute. But then thirdly, another thing that's going on here is, again, this whole aspect of human judgment. So again, he differentiates between God's judgment and human judgment, but he is speaking to human judgment. And so it, it's a bit of a challenge for us to understand, okay, how do we think about human judgment and the fact that we are, are we called to judge or, or not to judge? I mean, a common saying today, and definitely you, you hear it continuously in our society, it's not politically correct to judge other people in any way. And so you would hear the thing, well, don't judge. And people would say that oftentimes. And people would say that for different reasons. Sometimes people will say that because, well, it's just not politically correct to judge other people. And then other times people will say, well, don't judge because the Bible tells me so, that we shouldn't judge. And so my question is, is, is that in fact true? Like, are we to not judge in that way? And, and we see it played out in our culture in lots of different ways. I mean, you see it in education curriculums that come out where, you know, you don't judge students in, in a certain ways. I mean, you don't use red pens or you don't give them certain marks or you don't critique in any way or correct them or... 
In sports and athletics, you don't judge and rank people anymore. You know, oftentimes, everybody gets a participation ribbon. You know, you don't judge in terms of where people rank up or stack up or put somebody else against another or make assessments like that, right? So we, we see it playing out in a variety of subtle ways in our culture, this whole premise of, well, you don't judge. And so whether it's people's decisions, lifestyle choices, how we spend our money, we just say, you know what, that's their business, we don't judge, and that's sort of what we hear. But the reality is, is that we make judgments all the time, don't we? And, and even in Scripture, I think we'll see that we're called to make judgments all the time. And, and again, judgments come out in different ways. We make decisions, we assess things, we, we're constantly, every day you're making judgments. And I, I've told you this story before, but I mean, when I bought my first car, Lisa loves this story, I mean, I made a judgment. It was a 1979 Dodge Omni. I mean, who wouldn't want a car like that? And I remember phoning my dad, and I was wrestling with, I thought, I need a car. You know, I was like, I don't know, 18 years old or something, and living here in the city, and I needed to get around, and, and so, and my dad's words, I always remember, he said, you know what, Bruce, use your, ju- I trust you, use your best judgment. I bought it at night. It had rainbow stripes on the bottom of the car. It was white and had, had rainbow stripes on the bottom of the car. I don't actually think I saw those before I bought it. That car put us in the hole for years. So we always, we make judgments every day. Some are not so good. But we, we assess things. We make decisions, right? We, we sort of put things and stack things up against each other. And so we have to ask the question, okay, is, does the Bible tell me so? I'm not really concerned so much if it's politically incorrect, but I am concerned, okay, is this biblical? Is this a biblical? That we have to pay attention to. And I would say the answer to that is yes and no. Yes, it is biblical not to judge in terms of judgmentalism. Like I said earlier, like the Pharisees, where there's this self-righteous judgment of where you look down at another with a condemnation and self-righteousness, and you kind of set yourself apart and you judge in that way. But no, it's not accurate when it comes to the whole thing of how we make assessments and judgment because we are called to make judgments all the time, but in the right way. And here's the key. And this is what so many people miss, and and we have to read Scripture in context of Scripture and understand this, that, that the judgments that we are called to make are always for the purpose of healing and restoration and our witness. For healing, for restoration, and our witness. And so we'll see as we look at some of the text today that, that Jesus calls us to make judgments. Paul calls us to make judgments. We're, we're called to assess and to, to work through things together, even within the church, in a, probably in a way, yes, in a way better than we do right now because it matters for people's lives, for, for the, the brokenness that is in their lives, for, for the witness that we have as an individual and as a church as well too. Let's look at a few examples. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Many of you will know this text, interesting text, talking about incest in the church. Not a fun topic, but Paul is addressing the church in in Corinth, and he's saying to them, listen, because again, remember, he was often accused of being too kind of liberal in his theology and and speaking about the freedom of Christ, and that people accused him of even saying, affirming sin in some ways. Well, just look at 1 Corinthians 5. He says, you know, you have a person among you who's actually sleeping with his stepmother, and he thinks it's okay. And you as a church are kind of condoning it and saying it's okay. And Paul says, no, it's not okay. And he says, you need to deal with this issue because it's affecting your witness. 
and it's sin, and you need to deal with it. In fact, even to the point of putting him out of the church, giving him over to Satan is what actually Paul says. But to do so with a specific purpose that he might be restored and redeemed and see the reality of his sin and the need for God's grace. And then at the end of that section at Roman, or in 1 Corinthians 5, Paul says it this way. He says, it isn't my responsibility to judge outsiders, but it certainly is your responsibility to judge those inside the church who are sinning. God will judge those on the outside, but as the scripture says, you must remove the evil person from among you. Interesting. And sadly, what so often the church has been known for is judging the world all the time. Judging people who really we should have no expectation are living by the word of God because they don't put their faith in the word of God. And what Paul is saying is that, you know what, we actually need to take care of our house in a sense, and actually help one another towards holiness and make accurate assessments and judgments within our own house to help one another walk in freedom and forgiveness. If you look at Matthew chapter 7, uh, verses 1 to 5, just flip back a a few pages to Matthew chapter 7. And here's a well-known text as well too. Jesus is teaching, and he says in the Sermon on the Mount here, do not judge or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. What's interesting about this is that Jesus you know, doesn't say not to take the speck out actually. But he says, before you do that, actually do a little bit of self-assessment and actually take the plank and recognize the plank that is in your own eye and your own need for the grace of God, your own need for the solution of the gospel in order for you to actually come alongside a brother and sister and say, hey, let's talk about this. And so it's, it's saying, first of all, we need to take an assessment, make a judgment in our own lives and, and judge another in the way that you would want to be judged. Because Jesus says, in the same way that you judge, you will also be judged. So the question is, how do you want to be judged? If somebody comes alongside me to confront me on something, which I hope somebody would do if I was doing something that was blatantly causing, it was sin and causing problems for people, then I would want somebody to come alongside and say, hey, let's, let's talk about this. But to do so in such a way that actually was filled with grace, filled with love, as it says in Ephesians 4, 15, speak the truth in love. And done in such a way that actually would, would restore me to a place of rightness with God and with other people. And so in the same way that we would want to be judged, we are, as Jesus says, to judge others. Like, to deal with the plank in your own eye first, and then you have maybe an ability to walk alongside another. Paul also in Galatians 6.1 says it this way, Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. But watch yourselves, or you also may be tempted. So again, he's saying, be careful. Be careful how you come alongside a brother and sister. But he's, he's not saying don't do it. He's saying, you actually, you know, you, you, you want to go and restore that person, but you want to do that gently, and you want to do that in a way with, filled with grace, in the way that actually you would like to be judged. And so, as you look at the whole of Scripture and you understand these texts together in context, you realize that, that we are called to actually help each other walk towards holiness. 
And the problem is, is that we often shy away from doing that. We often instead feel that that's kind of awkward. That's, ooh, that's an awkward conversation. So what do we do? We kind of just stand back, shut up, say nothing, but then we kind of just judge from a distance, right? And we have those judgments still of people. They're still there in our heart, but we're actually not doing anything about it. And what Jesus did all the time was he would draw close. Like he would come close to people. I mean, even again in in Matthew 18 where Jesus is teaching about if you have sin in the church and if somebody sins against you and then you go and you talk to that person. And then if that person doesn't listen or there isn't repentance or reconciliation, then you take somebody else with you. And then if that still doesn't work, then you bring it to the church and you actually do it in a broader community. And then if there's still no resolve, what does he say? He says, well, then you treat them like pagans and tax collectors. And then there's that nagging question, how did Jesus treat pagans and tax collectors? He actually drew really close to them. He actually came alongside them. He actually ate in their homes. He actually spent the most time with them. He didn't avoid their sin or not acknowledge their sin. He actually was very truthful and honest, but gracious and full of love, and he came alongside and he drew close. The people that Jesus had the hardest rebukes for were the Pharisees, those who were the ones with the self-righteous judgment who looked down at other people. And he says, those are the whitewashed tombs. But it's the people that recognize their sin and and see their need for the grace of the gospel. Jesus drew close to them all the time and came towards them. And so, in the same way in the church, we need to love and help each other walk in righteousness. This process of sanctification that we all have a part to play in of restoration and healing. And so, rather than saying, and, and even in our household, I, I joke about this, and my, my kids hate when I correct them on this, but they'll sometimes, and we've done it, I've done it, you'll say the phrase to start with, okay, so not to judge, but. Anybody heard somebody say that? Anybody else said that? I've said that. Okay, I don't want to judge, but. And then you go on and you say something, Right? And my response is always, no, you are judging, so just admit it. And so it might be better to say something like, okay, um, you might, might say it this way. Um, I want to be careful with my judgment, but here's what I see. That would actually be a better statement. Because the reality is, is that when we make those statements, we are judging, we are declaring something, we are assessing and evaluating, but we want to do it carefully and filled with grace. I was just at a workshop yesterday that was talking uh, down in Regina, and it was talking about one of the sessions was about conflict resolution, and the presenter actually had a great point, and he said in in conflict, we have to move from the place of judgment to the place of curiosity. And I thought that was such a good word, of judgment where we we think we have, you know, kind of everything figured out, and, and, and we sort of know what's going on, and we make our assessments and so on. And so we need to move from judgment to a place instead of curiosity. Well, curiosity comes alongside people with questions and, and puts yourselves in their shoes and say, okay, let me understand. Help me understand what it is that you're walking in right now. The reason that you're doing this certain behavior or the reason that you have this certain attitude or whatever. But, but, but standing in curiosity is a very different position, but it's part of that walking together in judgment in a way that is appropriate and helpful. And so Paul is saying here that we need to deal fairly with fair judgments, appropriately with the sin, but we need to do that first and foremost, actually exclusively in the church and with each other, to point each other towards Christ and to do so with love and with gentleness and with grace because the integrity of our witness depends on it. 
Because the integrity of our witness depends on it. And again, we do that for the purpose of healing, restoration, and witness. And we'll come back to that witness part in just a minute. The middle section, we won't spend much time there. We could spend a whole sermon on this one. But we've talked before about we are not saved by works. And Paul goes into some challenging texts to understand here. But he's essentially saying here again that if you truly live by faith and understand the gospel, the, the evidence of it will be seen in your life. Like the works that come out of your life and the attitudes that come out of your heart, it'll be evident within that and you will see that. And so we see in verse 13 where he says, For it is not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, but it is those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. And so he's saying, it it will be evident. It's not just about hearing it and and just sort of having it in your brain here, but it's, it's about obeying it. It's about walking it out in your life. Where else do we hear Jesus teach about that? Let's go back to Matthew chapter 7, the text that we were just in before. At the end of Matthew chapter 7 is this well-known text where he talks about building a house on a rock on sand. And Jesus says, he says, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice, obey, is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down and the streams rose and the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice, does not obey, is like a foolish man who has built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. So essentially, Paul is saying the same thing here. He's saying, if you want to build your house on a rock and on the truth of Scripture, it's not just having you hear it and understand it here. It's actually changing your heart and changing your life. And how you live will be different because of that. I said earlier that there are a number of things that, that come out of even those first few verses. And another one theme that comes out is the theme of hypocrisy. Hypocrisy. Not living in alignment. That your, your life doesn't line up with your words. That your beliefs don't line up with, with how you're living that out. That there isn't alignment in that way. It's called hypocrisy. And this happens when people think they can get away with inconsistencies between beliefs and behaviors. And so uh, Paul is drawing out statements, and he's actually, he's speaking to the Jews here, remember, and he's actually pulling out specifics from the Ten Commandments that they would have known very well. So if you read it with that mindset, these people who understood the Ten Commandments and the examples that Paul uses, this was very personal. This was hitting a little too close to home. Let's read verse 17 to 24. Paul says, now you, if you call yourself a Jew, if you rely on the law and boast in God, if you know his will and approve of what is superior because you are instructed by the law, if you are convinced that you are a guide for the blind, a light for those who are in the dark, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of little children, because you have the law, in the law, the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then, who teach others, do you not teach yourself? Hmm. You who preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that people should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? As as it is written, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. In other words, Jewish believers, your witness among the Gentiles is being compromised because you're not living what you speak. You're not living what you teach. The integrity of your witness is completely compromised, so much so that the Gentiles are actually blaspheming God. And so 
Paul is challenging them very pointedly about their lives and about, and he's saying there's a gap here. There's not alignment here. If you go all the way back to Genesis chapter 12, you see that incredible text. Genesis chapter 12, verse 1 to 3, where God calls Abraham and he says, you know what, Abraham, I have set you apart. I am calling you out of your comfort zone, of your familiarity, of where you live, and I want you to go, and I want you to go to a distant land, and I want you to take the blessing of God to the nations and the families of the earth. And so Abraham is called to be the father of this great nation of Israel and these people of Israel. Of which later, and we'll see in just a little bit, circumcision was this sign that you were a part of this family. But they were set apart for a reason, and it was to bring the blessing of God to the nations of the earth. And so Paul is saying to, him, to them here, he's saying, you people have missed it. You aren't living out your calling. You aren't fleshing that out in a way that is actually giving witness to others around you. You are living with hypocrisy. And, and there's this gap between what you speak and how you live. And I've talked in a number of settings, and the way I've referred to it is it's, it's gap control. We have to control the gap between how we speak and how we live. And I'll tell you, the people that it's hardest to do that is the people with the microphone on their face or a microphone in front of their mouth because the people who are preaching the Word of God and speaking the Word of God, and then it's like, okay, does my life line up with that? But it's true for all of us. And I think, as I travel in pastor circles, I think one of the biggest reasons that there's burnout in pastors is because they feel this gap too intensely is they feel like I'm just a hypocrite because I don't live the way I preach. And I'm on public display and people look at my life and I just feel like there's this gap. And if, if we don't manage the gap in an adequate way, we feel like there's just too big a chasm here. Now, I am so thankful for the grace of God that the grace of God covers that gap. But we still are called to live, and that's what Paul is saying here. We are still called to live in such a way that the gap isn't so big that we feel this hypocrisy just deep in our bones. And so Paul is calling these people to live with alignment. He's saying you need to live in the way that you speak. You need to live with the witness of the law. If it's truly part of your life, then live like it's part of your life. Brendan Manning had a quote. He said it this way, The greatest single cause of atheism in the world today is Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips walk out the door, and deny him by their lifestyle. That is what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. That's what Paul is saying here to the church in Rome. Is he's saying, if you want to have integrity in your witness, you have to have integrity in your life. And you have to live in that way. Last section that we'll look at is this idea that religion can't save you. And Paul, he goes on in verse 25 to the end to talk about circumcision. And again, this was a symbol. This, this physical act that was done to the male species was this symbol that you were part of the Jewish people. And so he's saying to these people, you need to understand that that alone does not save you. It has some value, but if you break the law, I mean, you become as one who has no, hasn't been circumcised. Then he goes on. It's not about physical circumcision. It's more than that. And he says in verse 28, a person is not a Jew who is uh, one only outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is the circumcision of the heart by the spirit, not by the written code. Such a person's praise is not from other people, but from God. So again, 
Paul is challenging these people whose identity was found in their Jewish heritage. And they were thinking, well, that's good enough. Like, I've been set apart by God. Like, I, I'm, I'm saved. And he's saying, has the gospel actually transformed your heart? Has it actually infused every part of your body and your being and your soul? Has it brought you to a place of repentance and confession to actually recognize the, own sin in your, the sin in your own life? And that's what Paul is saying to them, and he's challenging them in, in that way. Is there evidence of it is in, in terms of a heart change? Galatians 6.15, Paul says it this way. It doesn't matter whether we have been circumcised or not. What counts is whether we have been transformed into a new creation. And so the question is, has your life been infused with the gospel? Has there been that transformation? Have you allowed the Holy Spirit of God to do that work within you? That's what Paul is saying to these people, and that's what God is saying to us today as well, too, through this text. Is does this gospel change us? And do we live in such a way that the evidence of that transformation is there within our life? And again, I want to come back to this fact that, I, sadly, the church, in broad sense, has had such a bad history of how we judge. We're not called to judge the world. We're called to call each other to account, to live by faith, to point people to Jesus and the need for it, but with no expectation that they would live in such a way that the Bible speaks to because they don't even believe it has authority in their life. But that we are to draw close and come near to people and put our arms around our brothers and sisters and say, hey, you know what, I've got a plank in my eye and I struggle with things too. But can we just talk about these things? Can we walk together towards Jesus in a way that we uh, are, are right before God and before others? Can we learn what, it, what it's like to actually walk in confession, forgiveness, repentance, reconciliation? Could we change this lifestyle habit that is actually destroying you and your family? If we could learn to walk in new ways in that way, the witness of the church would increase exponentially. As people would look into the church and see this is a different community. This is a, a people who actually take the word of God seriously and who live out of this word of God seriously and really care for each other and love each other. Even enough to confront each other. Because when you love somebody, you don't let them walk over a cliff. You come alongside them and say, hey, can I help you? Can we be walking together in one way or another? We need to live our lives in alignment. We can't live perfectly. That gap, as I think about that gap control, that gap will never be closed. There's always a gap there. But the grace of God is sufficient for that. But is the gap so big that the hypocrisy of our lives causes a compromise to our witness in one way or another? God calls us to that alignment. And it is the Spirit of God, if we allow Him to do so, that will change us transform us and give us the power to walk in that way. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for your love for us and I thank you for the church. I thank you for this body of believers. And uh, Lord, I pray that you would give each one of us a deeper love for this body of believers. You've called us to be part of a church, to be part of a faith community with all of our wrinkles and with all of our sin and with all of our mess, our weaknesses, and yet you've called us to love one another, to encourage one another, to challenge one another, to walk alongside one another, to forgive one another. Lord, help us to be that kind of body. 
And I pray, Lord, that as we walk in alignment and as we understand the reality of your judgment and also the way that we are called to judge in a way that is loving and appropriate, that we would truly be the church in a new way and that our witness would not be compromised. In fact, not only not be compromised, but that it would be a witness that would be proclaimed and seen as evidenced all around us, Lord. Change us as individuals and change us as the body of Christ, I pray. We ask for your forgiveness in our lives for where we have blown this, Lord. Thank you for your grace that does forgive us. And Lord, may you help us to walk in that truth of the gospel, in humility and in strength. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.